If you reach out your hand and touch your overheated laptop or the radiator in your apartment or the poorly insulated handle of a frying pan, chances are you'll pull your hand back in pain before any damage can be done. But what if you couldn't pull back your hand in time? Millions of people with peripheral neuropathy live with exactly this risk. Peripheral neuropathy, the name given to a class of dysfunctions of the peripheral nervous system, could have several causes, but the most common is diabetes. It can manifest as a tingling sensation or a numbness so severe that the body actually fails to generate pain to prevent injury. If science can find a way to treat or prevent peripheral neuropathy, life could improve dramatically for millions of people around the world who live with diabetes. Today's interview is with Dr. Christian Mitalo, whose work uses the tools of biology, chemistry, and engineering to quantify how metabolic function and dysfunction contribute to human disease, including diabetes. Dr. Metallo is a professor at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies, and his recent paper in Nature examines how insulin-regulated serine and lipid metabolism contributes to peripheral neuropathy. Dr. Metallo spoke with us about the inspiration for this research and walked us through his team's key findings about the links between insulin, the amino acids serine and glycine, and peripheral neuropathy in diabetes. We'd like to thank Untapped Resources for sponsoring Science Rehashed. Untapped Resources is a Boston-based foundation that funds the arts, sciences, education, and creative initiatives of people working to improve lives, celebrate community, and solve local problems. With support from the Untapped Resources grant program, we are committed to making science more inclusive and accessible for scientists and the science curious worldwide. We're so thrilled to have you here today, Dr. Patalo. And as always, we love to have our interviewees introduce themselves to our listeners. I'm Christian Metallo. I'm a professor uh, in molecular and cellular biology at the Salk Institute in La Jolla, California. And can you tell us a little bit about your career? So you were just telling us that uh, actually up until up through your postdoc, you were actually a chemical engineer. So can you walk us through the, your winding path? Yeah. So... I got, I got my undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania. I don't think I knew what an engineer was at the time, but I got into the chemie program at UPenn and really enjoyed that. But I had a love even back then for biology and I couldn't get, there was a few labs starting at the time doing biochemical engineering. I think Dan Hammer, Scott Diamond. But their labs were filled up, so I actually got my first job in a developmental biology lab. So I, I love biology, and that's how I got my fix at the time. And then I actually went to industry. I worked for a couple of years, and I went to Merck and Company just in West Point, Pennsylvania. And it was a great experience. I got to learn about viruses, vaccines. We were scaling up production of vaccines. I worked on a the varicella. And the, the really cool part was I worked on their adenoviral HIV vaccine candidate at the time. 
and uh, where we were producing research material and clinical material. And that that vaccine failed, but that technology actually just came out in the form, I think, of the J&J vaccine and maybe the Oxford ones for COVID. First time with adenoviral. So then, uh, but I found I was constrained. I mean, by, especially in bioprocessing, there's a critical path to get down the FDA regulations. You don't have room to explore. So I went back to grad school. I went to Wisconsin to, and got my PhD in chemical engineering. And there I worked on embryonic stem cells. If there was no induced pluripotency at the time. This was during human ESL days. And I, I studied how to differentiate the cells to epithelial lineages manipulating cell signaling, recapitulating the default model uh, of uh, neurodevelopment in human ESCs, but to guiding them more toward the keratinocyte epithelial lineage. And then I was searching for postdoc positions, and, and one of the, the bites I got from my emails was Greg Stephanopoulos at MIT. And he, he wasn't doing as much mammalian work directly at the time. He's, his uh, expertise is more metabolic engineering and microbes. But this was around the same time that uh, cancer metabolism was starting to bubble up and get exciting again. People were starting to talk about Otto Warburg and bioenergetics. So from 2003 to 2008, uh, I worked in Greg's lab learning to measure metabolism, learning to measure metabolic fluxes, either more at systems wide with models or with just isotope tracing and mass spectrometry. and there, I learned that I, I truly love metabolism. I started collaborating with a lot of the cancer biologists around MIT, Harvard. I mean, Boston is such a vibrant place for that. And I made a lot of connections there. And this, is, this really was the cancer metabolism wave that then I rode all the way to uh, California. In 2011, I started my lab at UCSD in the bioengineering department. And just continued to work on cancer metabolism. And then I expanded out to, to study the metabolism of other diseases. Because around that time, I started to get, I, I almost was a little bit bored with cancer cells. They're much more interesting than this, but at, at their core, from a metabolic standpoint, they're just proliferate. And they exhibit the same kind of complexion of metabolism. But when, as you start to go out to differentiated cell types and more other functional cell types, be it just adipose tissue, or a neuron, all these other different pathways turn on and, and it gets a little bit more exciting and functional, but, and, and it changes as well. So now I, I've since expanded to study a number of different diseases beyond cancer, inflammatory changes, immune cells, and, and, and the nervous system. Hi listeners. If you're enjoying Science Rehashed, let us know by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate our show on Spotify by tapping the three dots next to the following button and then tapping rate show. This is also a great time to hit follow if you're not following already. That is fascinating. We can't wait to hear more about especially what you've been doing lately and talk about your nature paper. But before that, so you've said you've started a couple terms like metabolic, obviously metabolism, but like metabolic fluxes and these sorts of things. For our listeners, can you sort of define what you mean? these? Like what is the, the metabolism and why is it important for us to improve our understanding of it? So metabolites are basically the building blocks of our body and the biochemicals that are carrying energy around. So from everything structurally, 
the basic building blocks of every protein is amino acids, and it's decorated with sugars and lipids. So getting down to the molecule, the molecules that are in constant exchange with one another, they're reacting with one another, are the bacteria in our gut and the, the cells of our body take the glucose molecules and the sugars that we eat and metabolize them, break them apart to generate energy and use them to build proteins, new lipids. So we're kind of like a machine. I've started to get this idea where I think about the human body as a machine, but a machine that's organic and metabolizing, ex- executing all these reactions. Metabolism is those interactions. And, and, and every basic scientist gets that. The part where it's helpful to be an engineer is when you think about fluxes, because that carries with it flow, diffusion, all the things that engineers typically have to work out together and look in concert. That's what flux captures. So like the flow of a pipe, the flow through a blood vessel. And so calculating that, though, it's a little bit more mathematically complicated and not as intuitive as just measuring how much of a metabolite. Going back to the, the Diffy Q classes for everyone. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I like the labeling because you don't have to always go through all the math, the, the mathematics to see is the labeling there or not. Because the, the beauty is not only are, and the interesting thing is we're not just looking at flow, but you have the thermodynamics as well. You have the biochemical conversions and changes, the generation of ATP, the elongation of a fatty acid. And that's where the technology like mass spectrometry or NMR have really come into play because we can start to visualize that. In, in, re- in real terms, sometimes you actually see it if you're looking at thinking about magnetic resonance spectroscopy, but we predominantly just use mass, mass spectrometry, which just weighs out the molecules. We feed, we feed our cells, we feed animals in the labs, or actual people, stable isotope labeled compounds, and then we can use the mass spectrometry to see where in the metabolic network those atoms and isotopes have, uh, have uh, passed on. Wonderful. You wonderfully, you set the stage for our listeners with metabolomics and metabolome and why they are important. So let's dive deep into the, into the nature paper that you recently published in which you show a causal relationship between insulin levels and peripheral neuropathy, which is kind of well-known and often quite actually painful symptom of diabetes. But before we dive into the technical details of this paper and this work, I would like you to help our listeners again to understand the background and motivation of this research, where it started, and why peripheral neuropathy is important. So when diabetic patients in particular uh, start to have real changes in loss of insulin, levels and changes in metabolism, one of the symptoms and phenotypes that arises is peripheral neuropathy, where they can either, it's so paradoxical because sometimes the way we measure it in the lab, it's almost a loss of sensation and a loss of feeling, but I think that can also turn to a pain threshold and it jumps back and forth. It can also cause injury, which further exacerbates 
pain. But early on, I, I was, am not a, a neuroscientist. What I also learned is there's very many different types of neuropathies. There's hereditary neuropathies as well. And you can have even diabetic neuropathy that's manifested by the central nervous system or in the periphery. So early on, it was a learning experience for me, I'm more of a metabolic scientist as to the nuances. And what I hope we've started to figure out is another subset of neuropathies that may actually be uh, treatable. What is the current state of art in treating peripheral neuropathy? I think it's, it's typically analgesics. I'm, I'm actually not an expert in this arena as well, but it's analgesics to try to just further further numb things, but the, the overarching cause, or to just to treat the diabetes. Because in the a, a major part of the field, the high levels of glucose that are in circulation are thought to be the primary driver of, of the diabetic neuropathy. And and that's partly due to redox stress that occurs uh, through an aldolase reductase pathway. But I think some of this work actually shows that, that that may not always be the case, that it's not that glucose, that aberrant glucose levels, but it could be changes in, in an amino acid, serine. Speaking of uh, serine and glycine and these amino acids, um, any background our readers need to know about these amino acids, I mean, I think most of our readers know about amino acids and that they exist, but specifically pertaining to kind of like metabolic flux and, and differences uh, there. They're my current favorites. I think when I was starting my lab early on, I was definitely in the glutamine camp. Uh, but serine and glycine are, uh, are the current are heavy focus in my lab, partly because they're so central to metabolism. So serine and glycine, they're almost in equilibrium with one another. Serine has three carbons. Glycine has two. Uh, the third carbon is donated to one carbon metabolism mediated by folates or folic acid. This is one of the it's vitamin B1. It's central for nucleotide synthesis. So it's a, it's a critical junction point in metabolism. You can make serine from glucose. But serine and they're in this, particularly in the peri, in the peripheral periphery of the body, serine and glycine are managed uh, by the kidney and the liver. The body will actually consume two molecules of glycine to make serine and incorporate one carbon units at the same time. So this is a central node, particularly important for the nervous system and highly functional cells. So I think the dogma would have been for for a long time that. The it's through one carbon metabolism because there are a lot of neurological disorders that arise. And I think it, there, there's probably some component of that here. But the approach that we took in, in thinking about what else might be causing this is to think about the biochemistry. And if we, we thought about, well, what we're seeing is that diabetic patients have low serine and glycine levels. And We'll, I'll come back to that later on, but we show why, we explain why that occurs in the paper. But the serine and the glycine are used for numerous pathways in the body, but one carbon metabolism is so critical so to so many important cells that if it's not functioning, a cell will probably die pretty quickly. So we wondered, especially in a chronic disease setting, if the concentrations start to just diminish and not drop off completely, 
what might happen. And really, it's it's the enzymes with the the higher KM values that will ultimately get lost. So there's one really interesting enzyme that uses serine called serine palmitol transferase. In that, it lies on the outside membrane and the cytosolic side of the ER, the endoplasmic reticulum, and combines serine and palmitol CoA, a fat molecule, to make a, a lipid, a sphingol. Now, and, and that is the biosynthetic initiating point for sphingolipids, which are critical components of lip, lipid rafts and membranes that bind to and surround growth factor receptors and, and other molecules in the cell. Now, a cool part about serine palmitol transferase is it's promiscuous. Just like you can mutate a serine or alanine in into any protein to mimic phosphorylation sites, these sphingolipids, they use serine for the head group. They can also sometimes use alanine if serine levels are down. And what ends up happening is you, la- you, don't, you make a lipid that doesn't have the hydroxy group that can be further modified to make more functional sphingolipids. You also can't uh, degrade the, these deoxy sphingolipids. Now, interestingly, there are people that have mutations in that serine palmitol transferase enzyme, and that forces the enzyme to use to like alanine more than serine. So they constantly make more of these. Those patients have hereditary neuropathy. That's an ultra rare form of neuropathy where patients lose sensing in their extremities. In the, in a proband on a paper we published a couple of years ago in New England, New England Journal of Medicine with some clinicians, one of the patients actually, actually had burned his arms off. Wow. Are you left with more thoughts or questions after listening to a science rehash episode? Join us on Twitter at Science Rehashed and leave your comments, thoughts, questions, etc. on the episode Twitter thread to rehash this episode using hashtag SREpisodeRehashed. You quickly mentioned that you see this also beyond the diabetic uh, and neuropathy in chronic inflammatory diseases where you see these fluctuations of serine and glycine, other diseases. So the hereditary neuropathy that I was just talking about, uh, it's called hereditary uh, sensory and autonomic neuropathy type 1. That's alterations in the sphingolipid pathway. We do see some diseases where the patients have low serine. And one disease that we've studied is this macular telangiectasia. It's a macular disease that it's, I, I like to think of it as an early onset macular disease where it hits patients in their forties or their thirties or their twenties. This is a, a, a separate story, but about eight years ago when I moved to San Diego, I got connected to this group of clinicians and ophthalmologists that studied this disease called MACTEL. At the time, they didn't know what the cause was, but one, one wealthy family uh, had a family member succumb to it. So they brought, since 2005, they brought all uh, clinicians and scientists together to try to get to the bottom of this. And they've sequenced a large number of patients with this macular disease called MACTEL. Uh, got up to four or 5,000, and they started to get some hints. 
that Siri was the culprit. And then they, they, I didn't do these measurements, but they sent them out to a, to a service and a handful of the patients and they looked at their blood metabolites and serine and glycine were lower. And this is a time when I was actually studying cancer, see the role of serine in contributing to cancer growth. Because you can remove serine and glycine from a diet and it'll slow down uh, cancer growth in the mouth. And, and we do that and we were studying the sphingolipid pathway associated with that. So we got connected to this group of macular disease researchers and found, though, that there was overlap between the macular disease and the hereditary sensory neuropathy that I was describing. Because some of the, the, the few patients that we can find with this hereditary sensory neuropathy, well, we had them tested for this MACTEL disease, and almost all of them had it. Now, I think we've since it's the number of the prevalence down a little bit, but th this is an ultra rare disease. But MACTEL is interesting because it's a, a more common, but yet still rare disease, but the patients have low serine and glycine. We've measured this over and over again, and now we're screening them more for the neuropathy. But that's still a rare disease. The real interesting thing comes when you can start to see a mechanism that carries forward to a, a common disease like diabetes. And being a metabolic scientist studying amino acid metabolism for some time, you see we've seen this signature of amino acid changes in diabetics. They actually will get elevated levels of branch chain amino acids. Those are essential amino acids. And they tend to have lower levels of serine and glycine. But nobody truly understood why. I mean, the almost obvious answer, which is what the title of our paper is, is insulin. But I think it goes actually to something more nuanced than that. And what we show is that diabetic mice, because they're insulin resistant or they lack insulin, they won't absorb serine and glycine as well. It's more of an engineering measurement to just do, but what we what we came up with is let's give the, the mice a serine challenge or like a serine tolerance test and just track how it changes. And what we could see, so in a typical glucose tolerance test, you give a person, a, a diabetic person in particular, a bolus of glucose and the glucose will spike way high because the people don't have insulin sensitivity or insulin and they can't clear it. And when we dose serine in, the opposite happens. We dose the mice serine and the mice without insulin or the mice that are insulin resistant would have a much lower area of the curves. So they weren't absorbing. So, so it's actually the opposite of what happens in a glucose tolerance test. And it just shows that they're just, the mice aren't absorbing. And I think there's a number of different things that are happening. The, without insulin action, they're not synthesizing it, though I think most of it has to do with just the handling and absorption. We haven't delved into it in the kidney, but the kidney is also a critical organ for this. I think a lot of it gets released out of the kidney, probably due to insulin action. But the interesting thing we saw is what the mice do is they convert that serine to glucose. And that's a really high flux. And so constantly our livers are taking amino acids and lactic acid and glycerol and resynthesizing glucose to feed the brain, et cetera, especially, in a, especially at night when we're fasted. But once you eat, the insulin acts to shut that down. 
but in a diabetic mice, the insulin is not shutting it down. So, and how 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 normal aging play a role here in all this? I have a line I like to say to aging scientists, even though I am one and I'm a PI on the whole on the aging uh, center, is nobody goes to the doctor and just says I'm old. It's always symptoms and more specific phenotypes. So, and and again, this is maybe me as a chemical engineer more. I think it's the specifics of the chemistry that drive those different phenotypes. I'd love to have some central cure for everything, but but it's going to be not every patient. Or what a little merge is that we age in different ways, biochemically in different ways. And I do think, Mehdi, that that there's a fraction of people that have low serine and glycine levels as part of their aging deficiency. And that's why we wanted to do the challenge test as well. Are you wondering what our team is up to and want to get to know us better? Follow us on Instagram, where you can learn more about our talented team from around the world. Our interests go far beyond science, from illustration to bike riding and more. You can find us on Instagram at Science Rehashed. That's at Science R-E-H-A-S-H-E-D. Peer into the lives of our team members during their Instagram takeovers. We love featuring our cats. And have more fun with us through giveaways and quizzes. That's super fascinating. So just taking a little bit of a step back from that, you found broadly that insulin is affecting the production of serine and glycine in the peripheral nervous system, and you've led us through the conversion of serine to glucose, the central part of your paper. Are there other parts of the study that you want to walk us through? So what we also, what we've seen in a number of different cohorts over the years, if we feed a mouse a diet lacking serine and glycine, they'll start to lose that thermal sensation. And what Michael, my postdoc, did, he said, well, what if let's double down? Because diabetes is associated with these, these neuropathies, and diabetes was also prevalent in the macular disease that we we're studying. So if we combined a high-fat diet with the serine glycine deficiency, in just three months, the mice would start to lose their thermal sensing. We shine like a little... A little infrared light. It's called a Hargraves assay. You shine like an Im- a warm infrared light on a piece of glass, and you measure how long it takes for the mouse to pull its paw. And they just take longer and longer, even just after a couple months of feeding this diet. And just to clarify, we're talking about type two diabetes here in 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 the paper, right? Well. So during the review we had the process, we actually went and, and treated mice with the with this uh, compound streptozytosin, which actually kills the beta cells. So, and that's that's a severe model of type one diabetes, where you just lose all insulin function, and that helped us truly identify that it was insulin, not just general type two diabetes. I feel like so many studies focus on diabetes being type two diabetes, and, and kind of like not extending to the type one, and that is fascinating that you've extended this like rigorous metabolic framework to type one as well and that that it's in there also and so one part that we haven't talked about uh in this paper yet is uh the buildup of a fat called ceramide right um in these peripheral nerve cells so can you define ceramide for us and tell us a little bit about its roles first in healthy human systems and then kind of like the buildup in these peripheral nerve cells and why it's toxic so right after you make when the serine gets added to the fat to make a, a sphingolipid, if you add another fat molecule onto that, you get a ceramide. 
And these are the core, just the core structure of sphingolipids, which are the uh, surround, are part of the cell membranes. They surround membrane proteins. It's also a major component of the way fat is transported around the body. And they've, it, they've gotten a lot of press of late because there's arguments that high levels of ceramides do associate with uh, obesity in diabetes as well. Now, the ceramides, though, that we were, when you have low searing, you don't make a, 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 a true ceramide. You make a deoxyceramide or a deoxydihydroceramide. Those are the, the truly toxic ones that seem to cause this peripheral neuropathy, especially when, when they accumulate in the skin, we think. And so in addition to discovering these new causal links between insulin and serine and glycine production and ceramide and, and the peripheral neuropathy, your team also exploited your understanding of these links to treat peripheral neuropathy-induced nerve damage. So can you tell us a little bit more about these findings and their potential clinical significance? That that one was reviewer number three. <laughs> to be fair, like we weren't... So there's a Thorsten Horneman, there's a researcher in Switzerland who's who's been doing this a little bit. And even Florian, actually one of your colleagues, Florian Eichler, DH, uh, he's worked on that. We talked to him as part of the MACTEL community once. And they studied this hereditary sensory neuropathy gene. So, but it really worked well. Uh, I, I, it, this is another one of those experiments where you're like, wow. This this made sense. So we just had the. It, it's easier than doing the serine glycine free diets. That's really kind of unnatural. But we just had the the company produce a, a serine enriched diet had three percent more serine in it, and we just switched the diabetic mice to the high serine diet. And what we saw is over time, as they aged and got. Well, the controls got neuropathy as and lost their thermal sensing, and they would even lose their tactile sensing. The high serine diet mice would actually fare better. So, we it was not even in the paper. We did it in the type one diabetes model, and that that showed some benefit as well, almost to the point where it may have even limited the damage. And that's something that other people have published as well. And these supplements are not toxic at all. We, did, we didn't see any deleterious effects. Uh, I mean, amino acids are a, a big commodity chemical, and I think there's testing that's done uh, for that. And I think amino acids, uh, you're going to pee, mo- in the end, you're going to pee most of them out. But they're not overly toxic that I have seen in any way, though we have published and studied, this is how we got into this. If you do have a cancer cell in your body, Notwithstanding many Im- immune impacts and uh, inability to clear that, having a, a lot more serine might actually make that tumor grow, grow faster because it is such a critical nutrient, not only for neurons, but for cancer cells too. That gets me to the, my follow-up actually question. The, the reason I ask if it's toxic or safe, because then this can bring really hint at the very exciting possibly that certain supplements can can be a very easy and safe and cost-effective way to to treat uh, diabetic neuropathy, right? I think so, possibly. We're, and we're part with the MACTEL group where actually there's a, a serine clinical trial that's getting started to test that out. 
specifically. The counter argument why when and in that trial, we're giving a pretty high dose of serine. So it's a lot. So I think because in part because it's such an actively metabolized nutrient. So I think there might be better ways and we're trying to search for those things, but I, I agree off the bat. I we there were people emailing me from that paper. So we're almost trying to back calculate how much uh serine, how much more serine was taken. And then that had to, I was emailing my postdoc about uh, how much food do mice eat in a day? (laughs) Oh my. (laughs) And so does this reduce the damage? Like once the damage is done, does it mitigate it or does it prevent uh, more damage from being done? We only started at age of week six in a mouse. And when things that in the DBDB BKS, a severe diabetes mouse. So before the onset, we we did try it unpublished. We're going to submit this paper soon, but in collaboration with the Lowy Medical Research Institute, which is the Central MacTel collaborating lab, uh, in the diet model, we've taken mice, fed them a serine glycine-free diet for ten months. In this case, it wasn't a high-fat version, and established that they get the peripheral neuropathy. They lose the thermal sensitivity. If you do it, when we do it for the long time like that, they'll also get a retinopathy as well as macular disease and then switch them back and there were improvements. So, so it suggests that it's not just about, it's not neurotoxic cell death and it's something that's actually changing. Even though we do, we did see a a reduction in the, the small like C fiber nerves in the skin. So it's, I think the eye disorder and the peripheral neuropathy, they're not exactly molecularly the same, but I think they both, at the core, come downstream of serine. Well, I, I think this is fascinating, even if you can reverse it at, to some extent. I agree. I totally agree. Um, and so what do you see as the challenges ahead in terms of translating this work into clinical treatment? Because it's, this is really exciting, you know? It's, I've gone, in the last couple of weeks, I've gone through this... Uh, this this existential argument in my head. Do I want to start to dive into the clinic, which I just feel is going to be a much more paperwork and administrative stuff, but it'll lead to the impact points. Or do I want to just keep playing in the lab and do both? But I, I think the answer is I'll probably still try to do both because I, I think tr- trying to parse out, are there a fraction of those peripheral neuropathy patients that we can see it seems to be serious? Because I don't think it's going to be all the peripheral neuropathy patients. That's why we kind of push the steering challenge because it, a, a clinical trial that doesn't work or it only kind of works is is not as successful as if you can really identify which patients are going to. So th- that's maybe me being the scientist and maybe we should just push on through. It's also more effective for... Um- the patients themselves, right? Instead of like trying something else, wasting their time, wasting, you know, like all of that, right? If you could find the patients that would actually um, respond to it and then understand, like on your end, on the lab work, you've done all this biology to figure out these these pathways and things like that. That would be really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess my last question, Mehdi, I don't know if you have, if you have one after this, but um, lab-wise, right? Because you mentioned you might want to play around in the lab a little bit more. Lab-wise, what's up next for you guys? Of late, I've been thinking more and more about different animals. And 
maybe the different different animals metabolize and maintain serine levels in different ways. And by studying different species, can we see a change? We're also, from a technology standpoint, serine and glycine are, 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 are some of the current faves, but the ceramides and sphingolipids, these large membrane lipids, I think we think they're at the core of a lot of neurological diseases and other changes. It's not always about bioenergetics and ATP, or if you do lose out on the ATP, the problem is that you start gunking up the system, not just with proteins, but with lipids. And in the sphingolipid pathway, there's numerous genes encoding enzymes in that pathway that are known to drive neurodegenerative disorders. Parkinson's being one of the clearest ones. But again, it comes down to the engineering and the flux. You actually have to measure these recycling and exchange fluxes, which are really tricky to measure because if it's there and back again, without a tracer, you can't really do it. So we're trying to develop technology now where we can study these lipid exchange and turnover reactions using isotope tracing and doing it in mice in cell, iPSC-derived cells, et cetera. And then there's cancer. Cancer is just an ever-present problem as well, which also has a good group of scientists in it too, which we're still trying to to get at. But in the last decade, everything has turned around in the cancer field. It's probably the same thing that's going to be applicable for neurodegeneration. Is that, is it the cancer cells or is it the immune cells? that are driving the disease or keeping the disease at bay. And I heard specifically the argument that there is some neuropathy, but that neuropathy is caused by the immune cells, not by anything in the neurons. Oh, interesting. Huh. Dr. Metallo, thank you so much for taking the time to share with our listeners a bit about your career and to walk us through your research. So, Mehdi, I came across a statistic, which I find frankly stunning, which is that in America, the National Institutes of Health estimate that one in 15 adults lives with peripheral neuropathy. One in 15. While not all of these patients are diabetic, more cases of peripheral neuropathy are caused by diabetes than by any other disease. And the primary treatments for these patients center on pain management. There are no FDA-approved treatments that target the underlying cause of diabetic peripheral neuropathy. That's one of the things that's so striking about diabetes in Dr. Matala's work. With the staggering numbers of people living with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and this enormous gap when it comes to effective treatment, these findings have the potential to transform life for millions of people if they're translated into treatment. Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Ben Allen, edited and mixed by Vesa Elieska. The cover art for this episode was made by our creative director, Emma Brand. We'd also like to thank the whole Science Rehashed team for making this episode possible. <laughs>